Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 144, The Agincourt Campaign, part one. Do you know, it's a funny thing. When I was a lad, formed by a liberal but abnormally patriotic father, I had no problem with the popularity of Agincourt with the English. After all, I was a lad. I had no thought for how miserable it must have been for the soldiers pooing their way across France all for the sake of their king's dynastic ambitions. No thought of the agonies of dying in the mud, crushed by the weight of the bodies of your comrades, and the slow death from an arrow in the gut. It was all about the ladybird images, the glory and triumph of the English over the perfidious and haughty French. Now I'm a bit older, I can take a more mature view. Not that I'm going to do that, of course, after all, I mean, a victory over the French is a victory over the French after all. In fact, I need instead to talk to you about incontinence. It's an unpleasant word, ladies and gentlemen, and I use it with the greatest reluctance and under the most extreme of circumstances. But I have to admit to having completely lost control of any writing discipline I might have had. So we are, in fact, going to have three episodes on the Agincourt campaign. Yes, three episodes on the Agincourt campaign. One for setup, which is today, one for the campaign, and one for the battle itself. What can I say? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Sadly, I inherited my father's, by now, deeply unfashionable outlook. So seriously, why is Agincourt on the lips of every Englishman, where Cressy and Poitiers, victories every bit as glorious and unlikely, are not? Why the focus on this one battle as the crowning achievement of English arms? After all, despite Anne Curry's attempt to argue that it was a strategic and decisive event in the role of history, in the scheme of things, it really wasn't. Within ten years, the English were going backwards, and in about 40, they'd been pretty much chucked out of France for good, with the exception of a small town noted for its supermarkets. So why are we all so obsessed with it? It probably has something to do with propaganda, the bloody bard, and English feelings of inadequacy about cheese. These days, historians have reassessed the numbers involved in the struggle, and the disparity between the armies, leaving us with a fight where the French were probably in possession of an army, say, 30% bigger than the English, rather than six times bigger. But the contemporary writers were all about bigging this event up, not in the game of mature reflection. The English bigged the number up because 
Well, they would, wouldn't they? In for a penny and all, might as well make a fantastic story out of an already pretty good one. Well, for the French writers in their monasteries, they also had an interest in bigging up the numbers because they wanted to accentuate the failure of the warrior class that was supposed, after all, to look after the other two estates and had failed to do so and get them to mend their ways. In France, the years after Agincourt were like the sports press after the periodic and utterly regular and predictable English failure at the Footy World Cup, an orgy of self-abuse, blame and flagellation without which no true Englishman feels complete. So from the start, the whole affair was exaggerated. And then, of course, we get the bloody bard, with his filling up of walls with English dead, tiger imitations and glorification of a few brothers, who just came to be the ultimate copywriter for the Agincourt Rocks party. I mean, to a degree, I wish we'd stop banging on about Waterloo as well, but at the very least, Waterloo was a genuine watershed, the final end to the years of Boney. Anyway, there you go. That's my whining out of the way. From here on in, we can simply sit back and wallow in the glory of it all. No wicked words this week, or for the next two weeks, folks. Too much spent covering the Agincourt campaign. Though on the wicked word, I have just put up a questionnaire on the Facebook site asking you all for a decision about whether we put it at the start of the episode or at the end. So hi thee to the Facebook site. I suspect there was never any doubt in Henry's mind that he was going to war with the French. As early as June 1413, he had written to the people of Salisbury asking for money for this expedition. And soon he had also touched Richard Whittington, a.k.a. Dick Whittington, for a loan of 2,000 quid. But there were a few steps to go through until he got to that point. Mainly, he had to look as though he was doing his very best to avoid going to war, and there is a stream of verbiage about the Prince of Peace, the righteous claim to France, the need for war before the French people could have peace and justice, the kind of tripe with which political leaders have filled our ears since, in the words of Ronnie Barker, time immemorial. Justification for war. Bellum justum. Just war. St Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, those evergreen philosophers of Christianity, had pointed out that while Moses and his tablets might have said that killing people was wrong, actually there were times when war was the only option in the face of greater evils and injustice. But to go to war, you had to justify that your bellum was indeed justum, that your war was just. Let's have no doubt about this. Henry's war with France was a dynastic war, a house of Lancaster after power and glory at the expense of the house of Valois. And in his book, 1415, the historian Ian Mortimer gives Henry a certain amount of slightly pompous, purse-lipped, sanctimonious finger-wagging for this fact. Which is odd. After all, up until the 19th century, there's precious little of any other type of war apart from the religious and I'm not sure which of those two philosophies is better. My rather laboured point is that there is a great deal of diplomacy going on, but it's seriously difficult to take it seriously. Neither side really expected anything to come of it. The French had no intention of conceding anything of significance and were simply seeking to delay. Henry fully intended to invade and simply needed to be seen to have gone through the motions. A couple of things are worth noting. Firstly, the kind of things that are being talked about are the old Treaty of Bretigny, you know, the one Edward III made at the height of his powers, 
which had never been honoured. The English used that as their basis, along with then reviving the claim to the throne of France if it was not honoured. And they pursued the idea of a marriage to the daughter of the King of France, Catherine de Valois. The other thing going on was an enormous amount of double-dealing, as you'd expect, of course. For which we should recap the political situation in France. So, the King of France is Charles VI, as genuinely as mad as a box of cheese. Medieval societies often didn't deal well with a lack of a firm monarch, and so was the case here. King Charles VI has his own family, the Queen Isabel, and his son, the Dauphin. Dauphin being the title given to any heir to the throne of France. This particular Dauphin is called Louis. Louis is only 18 years old in 1415, poor lamb. He's also surrounded by a bunch of powerful uncles, families of the royal blood and the great magnates, who squabbled and mathered in the power vacuum left by King Charles's madness. The key fault line, as we've discussed before, was between the royal families of Burgundy, represented now by Duke John the Fearless, grandson of King John the Good, and Orléans, represented by Charles, Duke of Orléans. So why don't we start by talking about that pair? John the Fearless. John the bloody lunatic, more like. There are lots of pictures of him around, so go and have a look. He's no oil painting, as my grandmother would have said, and just looking at him makes you check your back pocket to make sure your wallet's still there. Though my grandmother also told me not to judge a book by its cover, so I should be less judgmental. Though equally, that's an odd expression. Since I have sat in many a book cover design meeting, and let me tell you, our assumption absolutely is that you will indeed judge a book by its cover. But I digress. So, John the Bloody Lunatic. This is a complex man, a player, no fool. But as they say, if you shake his hand, count your fingers afterwards. He's rash, unscrupulous, viciously ambitious. Capable of anything, including assassination, and as bold as brass. Always, always surprising, but utterly untrustworthy. The other thing you have to remember is that Duke of Burgundy doesn't really mean Duke of Burgundy, per se. I mean, it does but it also means much more. Through successful marriages, the Duke of Burgundy also owns much of the Low Countries north of France, Flanders and Brabant. In fact, the power of the Duke of Burgundy has similarities to the problems to France caused by the overmighty subjects in previous centuries, i.e. the good old Angevins. So, turning to Charles, Duke of Orléans. Charles's father had been murdered in Paris by said John the Fearless in 1407, and had, as a result, teamed up with Bernard, the powerful Count of Armagnac and one of the constables of France. So the Orléans-Armagnac faction fought the House of Burgundy for the control of the French kingdom, while King Charles drifted in and out of sanity, and the Queen and the Dauphin tried desperately to achieve agreement between the two factions to avoid their disunity allowing the English to walk in through the back door. While we're on the French side, let's also mention the Duke of Bourbon, a family with royal blood and one of the most influential French magnates. A supporter of the Armagnac faction, John of Bourbon is 34 years old and something of a fire-eater. 
His attitude is essentially that the English are a bunch of losers and they're to be given a beating. Two other influential men on the French side, nominally at least, the French commanders, Charles d'Albray and our friend Bouquicourt, the Marshal of France. Whether you remember it or not, you have heard of the Albray family. Previously supporters of the English in Gascony, their defection caused so much trouble in the days of Edward III. Charles d'Albray was a dyed-in-the-wool supporter of the Armagnac and an experienced military leader who'd fought alongside that saviour of France, Bertrand du Guesclin. At 49, our old friend Bouquicourt is one of the most celebrated knights in all Europe, the star of the tournament at Anglevere, a military adventurer who had seen the least attractive side of military life in the defeat by the Ottomans of the Crusader army at Nicopolis, where his own arrogance and gung-ho approach to life played a significant part in Christendom's crushing and humiliating defeat. After that, nothing daunted, he founded a new chivalric order, based on the ideas of courtly love, which suggested he'd not learnt much from the experience, and he carried on travelling the East to take war to the infidel, fighting in Cyprus and Byzantium. Basically, he's not dull. He's very experienced, but whether or not he's got a brain is very much open to question. One more French figure, the Duke of Alençon, 30 years old, descended from the royal French house. His father, Duke Peter, had been exchanged as a hostage for King John after the Battle of Poitiers and had fought against the English in both Brittany and Aquitaine with Bertrand du Guesclin. Fighting the English was in his blood. So there we are. The Duke of Orléans, the Duke of Burgundy. King of France, the Dauphin Louis. The French commanders, Charles d'Albray and Bouquicourt, and two of the French magnates, Duke of Bourbon, and Duke of Alençon. By 1415, as far as the Dauphin is concerned, we are in a good phase of internal French relations. Both sides have been made to kiss and make up. Now, no one is fooled. The grinding of teeth is plainly evident every time an Orleanist and a Burgundian are in the same room. But on the face of it, they're all working together against the evil Anglais. What the Dauphin does not know is that the intensely untrustworthy John the Fearless is talking to Henry behind his back. You might remember that while Henry IV was alive, he'd picked the Armagnac Orleanist side as his partner. And in 1412, Thomas of Lancaster had fought against the Burgundians near Paris. It is a point worth remembering. That event had ended in humiliation when the French patched up their quarrel and sent the English home, an experience I doubt they took lightly. But also, the commanders on that expedition are leading men of the new regime. Thomas of Lancaster, the Duke of Clarence, brother of the new king. Edward of York, great man, though with a whiff of the untrustworthy about him. Thomas Beaufort, the Earl of Dorset, Henry V's step-uncle. These were all men that Henry V trusted and kept close. Now, our Henry took a very different view of the alliances in France, and always had done. From his point of view, the Burgundians were the right horse to back and he was contemptuous of his dad's approach, presumably with all the traditional sighings and eye-rollings every family knows and loves. But before we move on, I have thrown a lot of French names at you, so let's recap, since I know the names thing is a bit difficult when you're ironing or cycling or indeed trying to get a bit shut-eye. 
By the way, have I said that if you need to get some kip on an overnight flight on a plane, listening to a podcast is the perfect thing to help you drift off. I think it's something like going back to the womb or reverting back to being a seven-year-old having a bedtime story, something like that. Anyway, whatever. Back to the French names. So, at the top of society, we have Mad King Charles VI and his son Louis, the Dauphin, and heir to the throne. And then you have two factions at each other's throats in a remorseless struggle for power. On one side, the Armagnac and Orleanist, led by Bernard, Count of Armagnac, and Charles, the young Duke of Orléans. And then in the other corner, you have the House of Burgundy, led by Duke John the Fearless. Then, floating around, you've got the Dukes of France, men like the Duke of Bourbon and the Duke of Alençon, who would line up behind these factions as time passed by. And then below them, you've got the military types. Constable Charles d'Albray, who is incidentally also uh, an Armagnac, and Marshal Bouquicourt. Sorry about that, hate to labour a point, but you know. So, we were talking about diplomacy. Two more things. First, it's worth noting that one of the reasons Henry had to go through so many diplomatic hoops was that his country was far from being happily aligned behind him, at least initially. I mean, I imagine the average man in the Leicestershire field of Middle England knew naff all about the whole thing, until his local lord popped round to recruit him for the army. But the Parliament at Leicester was clear. OK, King, beating up other kings is the job of kings, we understand. And we understand that the French treated us at Bretigny. But we want to be absolutely sure first that the French won't just give you what you want. It's a note, not the smallest part of the claims to greatness of Edward III and Henry V was the risk they took. If they messed up just once, they were very probably poo, reduced to servitude for the rest of their reign by a grumpy parliament. Second point is that it's worth a mensch that there's some debate about the war aims of the king. Now, I don't know about you, but as I sat contemplating Agincourt in some club in Loughborough, watching my schoolmates pair off with various equivalent girls from the girls' school down the way, I assumed Henry wanted to be the king of France like Edward III. In fact, it's not clear at all that he did initially want to be king of France. He'd have been happy with the lands defined at Bretigny, which, true to say, did involve most of Western France. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, an army costs money, a lot of money, and England was a small kingdom on a damp island off the coast of the greatest nation in Christendom. Henry raided every piggy bank. In fact, everybody else's piggy banks as well. You are all now well trained in the ways of medieval kingship, so if you're made kings of medieval realms, you'll all know how to do it. Attacks on movables, twist the arm of the church to do the same thing. Go to your magnates and leading churchmen and get them to give you forced loans. 
and make sure you get the customs dues awarded to you by Parliament. That sort of thing. Piece of cake. Henry, unfortunately, had to go even further, and he had to pawn the crown jewels, often using them as surety for captains to raise their armies. So again, with respect to Henry's claim to greatness, risk, massive. If he comes back with nothing from this first campaign, he's bankrupted the realm all for nothing and will spun the rest of his realm paying it all off. By July 1415, a massive army was appearing on the hills around Southampton. This was the second biggest army to leave the shores of England since the Romans. Only Edward III's army at Calais had been bigger. The whole army was recruited by the now accepted method of indenture. So basically, as I believe I may have mentioned, an indenture is a contract, torn in half in a raggedy line with both parties keeping half. The king made agreements with a bunch of captains, who in turn recruited their own contingents to come on the war. Now normally what happened was that the king indented a couple of his great men to provide the army. In 1412, for example, Henry IV had made such an arrangement with three men for the whole army, the Duke of Clarence, Duke of York and the Earl of Dorset. But in 1415 it's very different. There are close to 320 captains indented to supply men to the army. Now it's true to say that the big numbers are once again the King's brothers, the Duke of Clarence going for 960 men, for example and also the magnates, the Duke of York providing 400 men, for example. But there are over 120 contingents which had less than 10 men in each. So all over the country, there's a buzz of activity and debate going on. Archers are leaving small villages in the early morning to march or ride down to the South Downs to join a national army and fight for their captain and for their king of uncertain heritage, seeking to restore his family honour and reputation against the ancient enemy of France. Cry God for Harry, England and St George, gentle listeners. Cry God for Harry, England and St George. Sorry. Anyway, who was in this massive army and how was it made up? Moderately interestingly, its composition was very, very different to the French army, which we'll come to in more detail on a separate occasion. There were two categories of indented warrior, the man-at-arms and the archer. A proportion was set and aimed at and generally met, three archers for each man-at-arms. This is new. 14th century armies have been generally much more close to equality, but one to three would be the pattern for a while. So your man-at-arms was, by and large, higher up the social scale, and gentleman, esquire, gentry or knight. Your archer, by and large, spent a fair proportion of their lives looking at butts. By which, of course, I refer to the archery butts for the practice required of all able-bodied men in the national specialism and competitive advantage, which was England and Wales's archers. The man-at-arms was required to come along well-armed with plate armour tip-to-toe and what's called a bassinet helmet, which are much more simple than the big old pot helmet used now only for jousting, and which had a detachable visor. They'd have a variety of weapons, lance, sword, axe, poleaxe, hammer, mace, and they would be mounted and expected to be able to ride like a gooden. The archers were much more lightly armed. Bow, obviously, otherwise you'd be called a chucker rather than an archer. 
sword and dagger. Arrows were often provided by the Lord, given the vast quantities required. And they were required to have some sort of body protection, reinforced leather armour, some sort of iron or leather skullcap. One other point to make about all these archers, of course, was that compared to your posh, heavily armoured and imbued with a sense of entitlement to men-at-arms, is that they are as cheap as chips, by comparison. These are not the only people in the army, of course. We think that the army that finally left England was probably composed of about 12,000 combatants, compared to Edward III's largest expedition of 14,000. But in addition, there were miners and carpenters and wagoners, and over 900 members of the king's household, whose only role in life was to make sure Henry could live in grandeur, glory and comfort. So the actual total number could have been fourteen to 15,000. Henry was aching to be off. Every passing day spent in vacuous diplomatic exchanges gave him less time for the big campaign. Over in France they realised this, of course. On the one hand, they were better placed than they had been for ages to fight the English. Just a couple of years before, the Burgundians had been in open warfare with the Dauphin and the Armagnac faction, with the Armagnac chewing their way through John the Fearless's territory. And as a result, the two sides had signed a peace treaty, and on the face of it were united. Charles VI himself was having one of his lucid periods, and putting all this together, actually the French were keener to get it on and have a fight than is often assumed. The king had raised taxes to fund an army and all. In 1414, flushed with newfound confidence, came the famous taunt about the tennis balls. Actually, most historians don't think any tennis balls actually arrived, and therefore there's no justification for the line in Shakespeare that made us giggle as callow teenagers, i.e. balls, my liege. But here's the entry from the contemporary chronicle of John Streech, which suggests that it was part of the diplomatic insulting and led to a grim response from his nibs, the king. For these Frenchmen, puffed up with pride and lacking in foresight, hurling mocking words at the ambassadors of the King of England, said foolish to them that as Henry was but a young king, they would send him little balls to play with and soft cushions to rest on until he should have grown to a man's strength. This went down predictably poorly with Henry, and his words are also recorded. If God wills and if my life be prolonged with health, in a few months I shall play with such balls in the Frenchman's courtyard that they will lose the game eventually, and for their game win but grief. I will awake them from their slumbers at dawn by beating on their doors. But although the French were ready to fight, they weren't idiots. They knew the benefits of delay, and so the diplomatic missions kept coming with the last set of talks as late as the 30th of June at Winchester in the south of England. Each time, Henry felt constrained to take part, to keep Parliament happy, to show he was doing everything he could to get a peaceful solution, to show that his war was justified, that St Augustine himself would have nodded approvingly. At this latest conference, Henry lost it with the chief French negotiator, the Archbishop of Bourges, and spat that if the French did not agree his admittedly reduced demands, the Archbishop would be responsible for, quote, a deluge of Christian blood to which the Archbishop was even more uncompromising. Sire, the King of France, our sovereign lord, is true King of France. 
and regarding these things to which you say you have a right, you have no lordship, not even to the kingdom of England, which belongs to the true heirs of King Richard. I think this could be considered provocative. Henry stormed out of the chamber, and by the 9th of July war was declared. On the 24th of July, Henry signed his will at Winchester, and things looked good to go. But fate had one more curveball to throw at Henry. Picture the scene. We're at Porchester Castle, which is on the south coast of England near Portsmouth and Southampton. Much of the fabric of the castle is still Roman, one of the castles of the Saxon shore that for a while separated the province of Britannia from the barbarians at the gate. Henry has taken up residence with his household. It's the 31st of July, the talking is done and everything is ready for the off. The castle is full of bustle and hustle as the household gets ready for departure. Enter the man known contemptuously as The Hog, Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, 23 years old, and the boy who had been the object of all that intrigue in the days of Henry IV. It appears to have been a good thing for the moment that he had not been able to inherit a head of Henry, on account of being largely useless. Henry demanded to see the king, and he looked worried and distracted. Henry was probably rather busy organising an invasion of France and all, but Mortimer was a great man of the realm, and he was due to give him time, whatever the deadlines. What Mortimer had to say knocked the wind out of the new king. Some of the men closest to him were plotting to remove him from the throne and replace him with a false Richard II that had been found in Scotland, along with the exiled Henry Percy, or, failing that, with he himself, Edmund Mortimer. Basically, Mortimer had lost his nerve and bottled it. Actually, it's entirely probable that Mortimer was well up for rebellion all through the time the plotting was going on. He'd been hit by Henry with a 10,000 quid fee to succeed to his estates and then had been handed down a further fine of 10,000 marks for his hasty marriage to Anne Stafford. So in all probability, he was not happy with his boss. But the prime mover appears to have been the Earl of Cambridge, the brother of the Duke of York. As the son of Edmund Langley, the previous Duke of York, he'd been rather poorly treated, or so he felt. Neither his father nor his mother mentioned him in his will, which is something of an outrage. He ended up with a poxy annuity of 500 marks, and Henry gave him not a groat more when he made him Earl of Cambridge. So, being earled up might have looked nice, but actually it made things worse, because he couldn't maintain himself to the standard expected of an earl, and the result was a raging sense of injustice hence rebellion. There is a deep, deep irony here. Cambridge's son, Richard, was the heir to the entire York and Mortimer inheritance, if neither York nor Mortimer had a child. And within a few months, as luck would have it, the Duke of York would be dead, childless. The Earl of March, Mortimer, would die, childless. And therefore Richard of York would be hugely wealthy. And his father, the Earl of Cambridge the father of King Edward IV, to be. Just a little patience was all that had been needed for the Earl of Cambridge, but patience was clearly not his strong suit. There were others in the conspiracy, a man called Thomas Gray, for example, but the one that would have hit Henry hardest was a man called Henry Scroop, Henry Scroop of Masson, where many centuries later my granny would go to school. Scroop was a mate, a pal, 
Scroop had shared the Welsh campaign trail with Henry, living, working, fighting and sleeping together. He'd fought on crusade. He'd fought with Henry at Shrewsbury. He was a right-hand man. On Henry's council, a regular member of embassies to France, treasurer of England and, most tellingly, an executor of Henry's private estate. Before nightfall, all three were imprisoned. And the following day, twelve good men and true from Hampshire were sitting on a jury. We have a number of papers, letters and records of the trial that survive, so we know quite a lot about the plot and how it developed and who said what and who claimed what. For all the good it did them, they might as well held their tongues. But the trial took place the following day. Grey was the lowliest of the conspirators, not a peer of the realm, and he was doomed. He confessed all, and that very day was led on foot to the north gate of Southampton and beheaded in front of the jeering crowd, his lands forfeit, his family ruined. Cambridge and Scroop demanded trial in front of their peers. Which was duly convened on the 5th of August, with the King's brother Thomas of Lancaster, the Duke of Clarence, presiding over it. And as I say, it did them naff all of good. Cambridge, despite piteous and a heart-rending pleas for mercy, was beheaded. Scroop was drawn through the town and beheaded. Now, for the sake of brevity, and because I have warbled on about the French leaders and therefore taken far too much time, I have not gone into the plot in detail. And hey, it's hardly the first plot, and I can reassure you it is categorically not the last plot in English history. So maybe that's fine. But the plot has twists, has raised suspicions, and tells us something about Henry. Basically, the whole plot looks like a busted flush before it was exposed. No one had actually put any plans in place for what would happen afterwards. Mortimer was a deeply unconvincing replacement for the king. Henry Percy, who was supposed to be bringing the false Richard down, was actually in talks with the king to be restored, and he would be back in place by 1416 anyway. No one had actually done anything. So this has raised two points. That Henry was incredibly, unreasonably and slightly pottily harsh in his response. And the suspicion that this is all just another Lancastrian put-up job. The argument is that as he left the shores of England, Henry needed to demonstrate that he was in control, he was the boss, lop off a few heads, that sort of thing. The Lancastrian chroniclers immediately started saying that these guys were in the pay of the French, and there's not a shred of evidence for that at all. But in common with most conspiracy theories, the Lancastrian pot-up job theory is a bit far-fetched. And after all, two at least of the conspirators confessed in detail, so obviously something had been afoot, and obviously something was happening. But the point about Henry's harshness is worth exploring. So let's put Cambridge and Grey to one side. They confessed, they'd plotted, they'd paid the price. They were a bit useless, probably not a real threat, but hey, you reap as you sow, ladies and gentlemen, you reap as you sow. But Scroop. It's pretty clear he'd been at the very edge of the conspiracy, that actually all he'd done is try to talk them out of it, and at the same time point out to them what a very poor idea the idea of rebellion was. Scroop's argument was described in his own letter to court that he'd been talking to the conspirators with the intention of ascertaining the malice of the aforesaid Cambridge and Grey, and his intention was to impede the malicious purpose of theirs. 
It is really quite likely this is true. In their accusations, Gray and Cambridge mention quite a few of other people who are entirely let off the hook, but they hardly mention Scroop. Plus, Morton was clearly a fat fool who was deeply involved, but because he blabbed, he got off scot-free. There's no doubt that Henry's treatment of his old friend, Scroop, was brutal. Maybe there's something of a sense of personal betrayal that sent Henry off the rails. Maybe the sense of desperation to be off on the long-delayed expedition led to an overreaction. But whatever, let's be clear. Henry V was as hard as nails, with a deep sense of his own importance and cause, and no one would stand in his way. You might think you were a good mate, but in the end, you were expendable for the greater cause. And the greater cause was Henry. Anyway, everything was finally out of the way. At last, Henry could board. The ship was cheered, the harbour cleared, and merrily did they drop below the hill, below the kirk, below the lighthouse top. I need to stop, seriously. But the last word, ahead of the invasion fleet, was Henry's last letter to the Dauphin, which contained the words that reflected Henry's conviction. Friend, give us what we are owed, and by the will of the Almighty avoid a deluge of human blood. A good place to finish, with the image of 1,500 ships bobbing up and down in the narrow seas, and Henry contemplating a deluge of human blood. I have a few donators to thank. Paul, Oak and Mary, thank you so much. Next week is, of course, an off week, so it'll be a couple of weeks before we all meet again and find out what's waiting for Henry over the sleeve. So thanks to all of you for listening, for your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and so on. Good luck and have a great fortnight.